You might be interested to know that back in 1901, a medical doctor, one Duncan McDougall, weighed people as they were dying in order to compare the pre-death and post-death weight of the corpse, and so determine once and for all if there was indeed a soul with some verifiably real existence that left the body at the time of death. He decided that the soul was indeed material, tangible, measurable, approximately 21 grams. His results have never been reproduced. (laughs) Back in May at our last question box service, one of our parents submitted this request. My kids have been asking me about the different beliefs on what happens when we die and other of life's big questions. We would like to hear some comparative beliefs. And I thought, well, that sounds like it might be kind of fun and would be fairly easy and a a straightforward kind of sermon to do a comparison of of different religious communities' views of the afterlife, just right for easing back into ordinary time after the holidays and some major bad weather. And you know what? Turns out to be a lot more complicated than just compare and contrast Christianity and Buddhism as they regard existence beyond death. I have at home some 50-plus pages of notes and research. If anyone wants to read them to get the parts that I'm leaving out, please let me know. I'll be happy to share. It's still been fun, but it has not been simple. So what I bring you this morning is unfortunately rather simplistic. There is a lot that will be left out, a lot oversimplified, and a lot still that I simply don't know. Research time was limited and I didn't get it all. It would be easier, of course, if I myself knew what lies ahead, but while I do have confidence that there is something of each human being that does continue after death, I cannot, of course, offer any proof. I have not been there and come back. And there's a lot of room for discussion between the survivalists and the disillusionists. There are lots of ways of surviving and lots of ways of disappearing. So, here we go. First of all, it's important to understand that one's views of an afterlife will, not surprisingly, be strongly connected to what one believes about that ineffable whatever it might or might not be that we have traditionally named God, Allah, the ground of being, Brahman, the source and end of all, the big guy in the sky, ancient mother, mystery, the list goes on and on and on. Among the questions to be answered about what I will, for the sake of convenience, refer to by my own preferred term, which is mystery, is does this mystery have a physical form? Is it in some way personal? Can you have a relationship with it? Can you have give and take? And then can you find that even those faiths that do not have a particularly anthropomorphic mystery or any form of a mysterious being at all, like Buddhism and philosophical Hinduism, some forms of Christianity, Confucianism, you find still have developed descending forms of the mystery with whom or with which to have a relationship, both during life and after death. Somehow there's got to be a something you can talk to. Christianity has the figure of Jesus. 
And since one of the central tenets of all Christianity is the resurrection, the vast majority of Christians meet their God in the resurrected person of the risen Christ, who can indeed be encountered in the garden where he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own, as the old hymn has it. Heaven for many Christians is the beatific vision of Dante, an eternity spent wrapped in the presence and the experience of seeing the unseeable face of the triune God within the infinite light. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I didn't understand it when I read Dante the first time, and I don't understand it now, but that's what a number of Christians are aiming for. Devout Muslims fully expect at least to see Allah walking in the garden of paradise. Some Jews will speak of being held in the bosom of Abraham while awaiting the general resurrection and the life of the world to come. Hinduism is essentially monist. Everything sums to the one mystery, the Brahman, and freedom comes from the realization that one's human soul is nothing more and nothing less than Brahman itself. But that esoteric understanding of God needed forms for people to relate to, and the figures of Krishna, Shiva, and Vishnu, and hundreds and hundreds of others arose as avatars of Brahman with whom, whom human beings could have real relationships. And even Buddhism, which denies not just an existing mystery, but anything that could be called a soul, has its bodhisattvas, its demons, and its demigods who play many of the roles of a traditional anthropomorphic deity. If the eternal mystery has or takes on a recognizable form that it chooses to reveal to human beings for the sake of having a relationship, and we are therefore its creation or its children formed in its image, connected somehow to it, then surely there is something in us that continues that relationship in the realm that follows this life. If the mystery is personal, then our continuing selves would also be personal. We move from this life into a new way of life with the mystery, in a new and permanent relationship with it. And if the mystery is not personal, as is ultimately the case with Hinduism's Brahman, all-soul, the unknowable beyond the known, or with Buddhism's state of nirvana, the soul of the individual is not in relationship with, but rather melts into and becomes a part of that non-existent, existent, transcendent, ineffable mystery. Did you all understand that? Good, because I didn't either. Another issue that shapes the views of the afterlife is the view a culture takes of history. Is it linear or is it cyclical? For the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, as well as Zoroastrianism, Baha'i, and Eastern religions of Taoism, Confucianism, and Shinto, history is a line that had a beginning, a creation, has a long middle that we're part of, and will have an ultimate end that marks the beginning of eternity after the end of time. And this means that both individual human beings and the world itself are unique historical events, each with a beginning, one hopes a long middle, and one hopes a gentle end. 
For most of these Middle Eastern faiths, the individual and the earth are heading for an ultimate end of days, an end of time, when the new heaven and the new earth will appear and time will become eternity. The Asian traditions embodied in Hinduism and Buddhism, including Sikhism and some Asian folk religions, see history as cyclical always turning in circles back onto itself in never-ending cycles of birth, life, death, between lives, and then rebirth. All things, people, animals, insects, rocks, trees, everything that is or that seems to be has what can be called a soul, the Atman in Hinduism, that had no beginning and will have no end. And even the gods themselves are caught up in these infinite ongoing cycles. They move the cycles along, and at the end of each cycle, when the mystery has absorbed all things into itself, they too have an in-between time until the mystery recreates all that is, and the great cycle, with all of its smaller cycles, begins again. The goal of Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism is to get off the spinning circles and find ultimate merger, ultimate oneness with mystery so as not to be thrown back onto the wheel in the current cycle or in any future ones. So there is a sense in which time ends for these reincarnation traditions as well. And there are reincarnation traditions, contemporary Wicca or paganism, esoteric or Kabbalistic Judaism, some Quakers, theosophists, even some small groups within Islam, where time is both linear and cyclical, and the soul's repeated rebirths occur along the line of history. Reincarnation is not restricted to Hinduism and Buddhism. For the Abrahamic traditions on the whole, though, the soul's goal is not reincarnation, but rather resurrection. Some take this quite literally, others as a spiritual metaphor. But the Nicene Creed is quite clear, and that's the foundation for all Christianity. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Resurrection, physical or spiritual, was a latecomer to Judaism, but an essential and essentially Jewish element of Christianity. And it came about, as the notion of an afterlife seems to have come about almost universally, in response to two more questions about the mystery. Is God all-powerful? Is God just? In its earliest form, Judaism had no real concept of an afterlife. It spoke of Sheol, a dim, dry, dusty underground realm where the dead, virtuous and wicked alike, spent eternity in a kind of hopeless, empty existence. The book of Ecclesiastes is full of such cheerful references. For the fate of humans and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and humans have no advantage over the animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knows whether the human spirit goes upward and the spirit of animals goes downward to the earth. But whoever is joined with the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, and even the memory of them is lost. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. Never again will they have any share in all that happens under the sun.
you die, it's over. And the book of Job specifically raises the question of some continuation after death along the lines of, this isn't fair. But mortals die and are laid low. Humans expire, and where are they? As waters fall from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so mortals lie down and do not rise again. Until the heavens are no more, they will not awake or be roused out of their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. Put me in your daytimer, God. If mortals die, will they live again? All the days of my service would wait until my release should come. Essentially stamping his feet and saying, if this is it, this isn't fair. Toward the end of the pre-Christian era, the rabbis began putting forth more concrete notions of a life after death as something demanded by God's justice and mercy. If the good suffered in life and the wicked prospered, as was unquestionably the case, then the scales had to be balanced. If it didn't happen in this life, then it must come in the next. So Sheol became not a final destination, but a kind of waiting room where the soul would remain until divine justice decided whether to send it to the fires of Gehenna or to paradise. In Sheol, the soul would sleep until the final day, when the general resurrection would call all the dead from their graves, where they had been sleeping unconsciously, call them back into life, into their original bodies, to be judged and sent into either eternal bliss or eternal darkness and flames. And this understanding of the time after death as a time of soul sleep was abandoned by the early Christian church. The early Christians fully expected that the day of judgment would come during their lifetimes because Jesus had said that the generation would not pass away. Then they decided since he kept not keeping that appointment and he kept not showing up, they needed to rearrange their understanding of what Jesus had meant by, you're all going to be with me. They decided that the dead went immediately to what was called a partial judgment, in which the individual soul learned immediately upon death what God thought of it, and so received a forewarning of its eternal destination. The perfect souls, and there weren't very many of them, were escorted immediately into heavenly bliss. The wicked, the truly wicked, who wanted nothing to do with God or had sinned so greatly that God's justice demanded severe punishment, went immediately to hell. But the vast majority went to purgatory, that in-between realm of punishment and purification, until on the day of the general or final judgment, the dead would be brought forth in their now perfect bodies to be divided into the saved and the unsaved and sent off accordingly to heaven or to hell. The Protestant reformers rejected the the concepts of purgatory and a partial judgment. They went back to the Jewish teachings and taught that the soul is in a suspended state until the resurrection at the end of days. In Orthodox Christianity, the program for soul approaching the end of days is pretty clear-cut. There is death, followed by a time of unconscious sleep, which is the state all the dead are in right now. 
Then will come the second coming of Christ, when the dead shall be resurrected and the faithful, both living and dead, shall rise up into the air to meet Jesus. This is the rapture. Following the rapture, the righteous will live in heaven for a thousand years while the earth is left in great tribulation. The world will eventually end. The left behind unrighteous will be judged and condemned to hell. And a new heaven and a new earth will be created, the ultimate consummation of God's will for his creation. Now, Christians do still argue about whether this resurrection will be physical or spiritual, whether non-Christians will have any eligibility for heaven, whether heaven is a continuation of life as we have known it on earth, only perfect. You can always find a parking place in heaven. Or is it a totally different state of being that we cannot even begin to imagine? Many Christian groups have become universalists by now, believing that at the end of time, hell will be abolished, except for those who really, really want to be there. And all people will have a place in God's eternal love. Many Protestant groups, most of them the more liberal, have dropped the end-of-days scenario to say instead that the dead go immediately to live with God, whatever that means. It sounds suspiciously like the partial judgment that Calvin and Luther and the other reformers rejected, but no one ever said that theology was a consistent science. Islam, the descendant of Judaism and Christianity, has a very similar view of judgment and resurrection but insists in its most popular formulations that the resurrection is immediately into either paradise with either 70 virgins or 70 olive trees, depending on what the actual translation is. (laughs) And there is debate over which one you're going to get. I think that for many, the olive trees might be more useful, but that depends upon the gender of the person showing up in paradise. You could have a good time trying to figure out how that one works. Or you go to hell for eternal punishment. The Tibetan Book of the Dead is a sort of handbook for how to be dead in the Buddhist tradition. It describes in great detail the experiences of the in-between time, the bardo, when the soul, which does not actually exist, is moving from one life in the world of illusion to either the road of light that leads to nirvana or back into another life on earth, or a life in one of the other realms of existence to spend another lifetime trying to learn what it needs to know in order to escape the wheel of rebirth and enter into the state of nirvana. There are forms of Buddhism, however, that would prefer an ongoing heaven, if you don't mind, and there are several realms of peace and beauty and perfection ruled by various bodhisattvas where the good soul may be reborn into a lifetime of bliss. There are other realms ruled by demons, and the truly wicked may spend a lifetime or two in one of those realms before continuing on the bright light path with somewhat more education about what was required of them. Because it is all cyclical, remember, those heavens and hells are all temporary, And the existences in them are temporary illusions to educate the soul in its journey to not being in nirvana. And I don't really understand that either. And there is so much more that could be said. That could be said on a topic about which we ultimately know nothing. 
Contemporary Unitarian Universalists like the Reform and Reconstructionist Jews and the Quakers and the non-theological Congregationalists and others will by and large say that whatever might come after this life, whether it's some kind of continuation of this one or rebirth into another one or some sort of existence that we cannot possibly imagine or complete annihilation, in which case there's no problem at all. Annihilation isn't much different, after all, from nirvana or disillusion into a Brahman. Whatever might come next doesn't really matter. The teacher Confucius, like the Buddha, refused to speculate upon an afterlife, saying that human beings understand far too little of life here and now to waste it planning for a hereafter they understand even less. Our task, practically and spiritually, is to better understand life here and now and live it as the sacred, irreplaceable series of moments and opportunities for love, joy, compassion, and peace that this life truly is. Deep peace to you. Go forth and be peace. Blessed be and amen.